Hello, my name is MG Bolter, and this is the Clifftown Podcast, a companion project to my album, Clifftown, which explores the stories, people, history, and culture of Southend-on-Sea on the North Thames coast here in Essex. My original plan for this episode was to look at the few literary connections in the town, one small aspect being the life and works of the little-known Victorian poet, novelist and dramatist Robert Buchanan. However, the more I kept unpacking his story, the more revelations and compelling themes came out, including literary spats, West End shows, attempted suicides and the unsung and overlooked career of fellow South End resident Harriet J. Join me as I explore the literary life of South End. Welcome to Clifftown. It's fair to say South End on Sea is not known for its literary connections. The town is used to great comedy effect in Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect note that their surroundings look a lot like South End Seafront when the spaceship they're on is put into infinite improbability drive. More soberly, it is South End that John and Isabella Knightley depart for their holidays in Jane Austen's Emma, which was published in 1816. But in terms of writers inspired or practising in Clifftown, there are few. One of my personal favourites is John Fowles, who grew up in Phillybrook Avenue, barely 10 minutes walk from my flat. The house, identifiable now by a plaque commemorating its most famous resident, who had written The French Lieutenant's Woman and The Magus. Fowles left Southend early, relocating to Lyme Regis. Joseph Conrad drank at the lobster smack on Canvey Island. Daniel Defoe and Samuel Pepys made it out to Thurrock, as did Bram Stoker, who opened his novel Dracula with the Count planning a house purchase in Purfleet-on-Thames, just a few miles down the coast. But as I say, it's Robert Buchanan who I am focusing on in this episode. Don't worry, I didn't know who he was either, but there's a reason for that, I found. So let's start with a quick run-through of the early years. Researching Robert Buchanan was not easy. He's a pretty specialist subject. I had to slog through a lot of unfamiliar Victorian names and events to get the gist of exactly what was going on. Robert Buchanan was born in 1841 in Staffordshire to Anglo-Scottish parents, attending school and university in Glasgow. In 1860, he set off for London, for fame and fortune. It was during the 1860s he produced a number of books of poetry which started getting attention. These included Ideals and Legends of Inverburn in 1865 and North Coast and Other Poems from 1868. And this is pretty much where we're going to pick up the story. It all seemed to be going well for Buchanan. His poems so well regarded that in literary circles he was touted as the successor to his contemporary, Alfred Lord Tennyson. He was punching out poems and novels 
and contributed literary criticism to leading literary journals. He was also deeply in love with his wife, Mary Buchanan. But by the early 1870s, this was all about to change. In October 1871, Buchanan wrote an ill-starred review of the recent poetry of one Dante Gabriel Rossetti in a journal called The Contemporary Review. Rossetti was a big cheese in the art world, having been a founder of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. The language is dense, flowery and dated now, but in the following passage you should get a sense of the searing criticism. Robert Buchanan's Criticism of Dante Rossetti Mr Rossetti has been known for many years as a painter of exceptional powers who, for reasons best known to himself, has shrunk from publicly exhibiting his pictures. He belongs, or is said to belong, to the so-called Pre-Raphaelite school, a school which is generally considered to exhibit much genius for colour and great indifference to perspective. Judged by the photographs, he is an artist who conceives unpleasantly and draws ill. Judged relatively to his poetic associates, Mr. Rossetti must be pronounced inferior. He cannot tell a pleasant story like Mr. Morris, nor forge alliterative thunderbolts like Mr. Swinburne. It must be conceded, nevertheless, that he is neither so glibly imitative as the one, nor so transcendently superficial as the other. As a poet idolised by his own family and personal associates, Mr. Rossetti did not formally appeal to the public until rather more than a year ago, when he published a copious volume of poems, with the announcement that the book included nothing which the author believes to be immature. Here is a full-grown man, presumably intelligent and cultivated, putting on record for other full-grown men to read the most secret mysteries of sexual connection, and that with so sickening a desire to reproduce the sensual mood, so careful a choice of epithet to convey mere animal sensations, that we merely shudder at the shameless nakedness. It is neither poetic, nor manly, nor even human to obtrude such things as the themes of whole poems. It is simply nasty. Mr. Rossetti owes his so-called success to the same causes. In poems like Nuptial Sleep, the man who is too sensitive to exhibit his pictures and so modest that it takes him years to make up his mind to publish his poems, parades his private sensations before a coarse public and is gratified by their applause. It must not be supposed that all Mr. Rossetti's poems are made up of trash like this, but the fleshy feeling is everywhere. Under the pseudonym Thomas Maitland, Buchanan was soon rooted out as the author of this attack, which was essentially calling Rossetti and other poets of the period out as, well, not very good at poetry, and at worse, superficial, nasty, a bit too base and lustful, trash as Buchanan ends his review. This review started what was known as the Fleshy School Controversy and brought Robert Buchanan into disrepute amongst his friends and peers. Buchanan had not only attacked a respected and well-loved figure, he had taken a swipe at fellow poets.
The negative reaction was enormous. Poets and critics piled in on the side of Rossetti, who had attempted to take his own life not long after. It's hard to sympathise with a group of highly educated, elite Victorians having a spat about who writes the best poetry. But the fallout was so great, I think because Buchanan seems to have betrayed a trust, an unwritten code of supporting your fellow artist. And it seems the fact he did all of this under a pseudonym made it worse in the eyes of his peers. Fifty years after the controversy, poet Ezra Pound was moved to refer to Buchanan in the 1920s as fetid. Rossetti's response to him was simply this. Rossetti's retort to Buchanan. Buchanan, in fact, whatever his professions of high moral aims, had a mind which touched nothing it did not contaminate. Low in mind, low in taste, low in breeding, and as an apostle of morality, evidently insincere. Such was Buchanan. For Buchanan was not only a hypocrite, but a clumsy hypocrite, and not through any element of honesty, but through sheer stupidity, perhaps the most contemptible figure in English literary history. Life seemed to have taken a downturn for the Buchanans. Around the same time as the fleshy school controversy was heating up, Buchanan's wife, Mary, was becoming gravely ill with cancer. And so they, along with Mary's sister, Harriet Jay, moved to Southend-on-Sea for the cleaner sea air. In 1903, Harriet published a loving memoir of Robert and wrote about their time in the town. In this extract from the memoir, Harriet describes their journey from Fenchurch Street Station in London to Southend. Mary is clearly looking and was very unwell. As spring gave place to summer, she longed for a sight of the sea. So we went for the first time to South End. The details of that journey I recall as vividly as if it had been undertaken but yesterday. There is a long flight of steps at Fenchurch Street Station which leads up to the platform. I remember how eagerly she made for those steps while her husband was at the ticket office in order that he might not see how difficult it was for her to mount them. A gentleman coming down as she was going up paused for a moment and offered her his arm, which was curtly and irritably refused. Why did he do that? she asked, turning to me. I am quite well able, quite strong enough to walk alone. All these incidents came vividly back to me on June the 14th, 1901. At first it seemed that the change for which she had longed would be beneficial to her. The rooms which we occupied were close to the sea and she was able to go out and sit on the cliffs and bask in the sunshine. But it soon became evident that the attacks of pains which she tried so heroically to hide were sapping her strength away. She was fighting a losing battle, and at length she was cruelly conquered. On June 22nd of that year, Mr Buchanan wrote to Mr Canton, I ought to have thanked you before for reading those proofs, but indeed I have had no time to think of anything. My poor wife has had a relapse, and is now very ill. So much of our time and thought is spent on her. Her suffering is at times very hard to contemplate, though her courage and patience are very great. Her walks on the cliff were now discontinued. We took her out once in a bath chair. But she cried all the time. 
and on her return to the house became so hysterical that the experiment was not repeated. Her attacks of pain were now very frequent and very terrible. She refused to have morphia administered. Yet I have seen her almost tear the bedclothes in order to prevent herself from shrieking aloud. At such times her great anxiety was to keep her husband from the room, and when I asked her the cause of this, she replied, "'He is always wanting to do something for me, and I know now that nothing can be done. I want to be left alone.' In November the end came, and she passed away in her husband's arms, her head resting on his shoulder. A few days later, Mr Buchanan wrote the following to the honorary Roden, Noel. Dear Roden, she looks so beautiful in her coffin. I feel as if she were my child too, child and wife, for she had a child's angelic disposition. In the volume of Mr Buchanan's selected poems, published in 1882, will be found the following. Dedication to Mary. Weeping and sorrowing, yet in sure and certain hope of a heavenly resurrection, I place these poor flowers of verse on the grave of my beloved wife, who, with eyes of truest love and tenderness, watched them growing for more than 20 years. Robert Buchanan, Southend, 1882. Exiled in Southend, Buchanan was unable to ingratiate himself back into the literary art circle he had once been championed in. Rossetti suffered a mental breakdown in 1872 as a result of the review Buchanan had given. Rossetti became addicted to chloral hydrate, a sedative, as well as whiskey, the former contributing to his death in 1882, just one year after Buchanan's beloved Mary had passed away from cancer. Buchanan turned to novel writing and quietly forged a creative partnership with his sister-in-law, Harriet, who stayed by his side. It is unclear if Harriet and Robert developed a romantic relationship, but it was clear Robert suffered much grief after his wife's death, as this passage in Harriet Jay's biography of him testifies. After the death of his wife, he wished to remain quietly at South End. But instead of following his own inclination, he listened to the advice of his friends and again took to roaming. After a few months spent in France, he returned to London, settling again in a furnished house and taking from time to time various trips to South End, which little town had by association become very dear to him. For many years, he wrote plays in conjunction with Mr G. R. Sims, and during that time, the two made frequent trips to South End. On a holiday, wrote Mr Sims, he lived every hour of the day. The long walk never tired him. The long drive never made him sleepy. He would sit far into the night and smoke cigarettes and talk and be up in the morning eager for work or play. Once at Southend, we went to bed at three. At half past eight, he was up and ready for a stroll before breakfast. We walked about Southend for an hour. Suddenly, my companion left me saying, go back to the hotel, I'll be with you directly. When he came in, I noticed that the knees of his trousers were covered with chalk. He had gone to the graveyard to see the grave of his wife. He had found the gate locked and climbed over the wall. On his return to England, he went again to South End, taking this time a house which he furnished himself. So resolved was he to make South End his home. This house, which had already been the home of Sir Richard Cunliffe Owen and Sir Edwin Arnold, was a quaint old country place with extensive gardens and eight acres of meadow, and it was known as Hamlet Court. 
I spent the time between this and London, wrote the poet. Without the stage, I think I should go melancholy mad. It is not only a source of profit, but of recreation, as I produce and stage manage my own dramas in every detail. I think, moreover, there is moral gain in rubbing shoulders with non-literary people. Perhaps I can persuade you to spend a few days here. There is no lovelier spot when the spring becomes a certainty. Since then, however, the builder has been busy and Hamlet Court is no longer what it was. In those days, it was a paradise for the poet to dream in. But now the fine old elms which formed the avenue, known as the Lover's Walk, have disappeared. And in the eight acres of meadow stands the fashionable Queen's Hotel. There is a station too. And the little hamlet is now known as Westcliff-on-Sea. It was from there that he issued his poem, The City of Dream, a verse from which is now to be found upon his tomb. We walked out on the feast of Stephen We were out and up and away Midnight black Black scarab, black bitter hearts in flight on the wing. We prayed hard like children. Okay, we're going to leave Robert and Harriet there for a time. We'll come back to them. Instead, we're going to take a side route, because the Hamlet Court that Harriet mentions was located and gave its name to the Hamlet Court Road, a well-known landmark to any denizen of Clifftown. I have known Hamlet Court Road since I was a kid. There was a music shop there called Music Land, and I remember people saying it was the place to shop in the 1930s. It's a broad street running down to Westcliff Station, and the estuary. Oddly, it terminates just above the building where the Studio Jazz Club had been, which I cover in episode two. I was intrigued to know where the Hamlet Court had been in relation to the modern-day road. Andy Atkinson, the chair of the Hamlet Court Conservation Forum, a body created by residents and businesses to conserve the historic landscape of the area, and to highlight its local and national importance to the local council, met me for a stroll down this fascinating road. The road that um, was was made, I think, to feel like London, and there's a lot of association with London in some of the names that have been used. This used to be known affectionately as the Bond Street of the East, the Bond Street. So it's amazing that people thought that highly of it. Um, there, it's supposed that the railway station was going to be called Kensington on Sea before, before it was called Westcliff, which is in, which is quite interesting. We haven't had that confirmed, but it's, we've heard it. And what we have had confirmed is that one of the roads at the bottom of the, the bottom of Hamlet Court Road is now called Holland Road and that used to be called Piccadilly. Now we know that for a fact because we've seen that in Essex Record Office. So Piccadilly and the steps that lead down to the beach at the front were the Piccadilly steps. So there are these interesting urban associations with with London and the metropolis. 
And this road was trying to be like a piece of London. So it is an amazing, it's an amazing series of, uh, an architectural explosion is how I, I kind of describe it. Hamlet Court Road begins, the story begins with the, with the railway. The railway station opened in 1895, so end of the 19th century, and that led to what became an explosion in Hamlet Court Road. And we're standing right in the, in the middle of the, the main drag, as it were, that would have been filled with retail and shops, with beautiful things for sale, clothing, foodstuffs. Um, all the shops had sun awnings out the front with big displays. People walking up and down in their Edwardian finery, it would have been, it would have been an amazing sight. So that was the, that was the birth of the road. And some amazing things happen. I mean, in the Edwardian period, um, the Edwardians just let rip with their architecture. So there was uh, this thing called Edwardian freestyle architecture, where they borrowed architectural references from the historical past. So consequently, and you can see it up and down the road all over the place, you can see references to classicism. So we're looking across the road now at a building with a with a large pediment on it. Look, could be on the front of a classical building, and a beautiful cornice running along the, the, the roof line, with these little brackets sticking out, and those things are called dentils, which is like teeth. Um, and the, the building is highly decorated at, at a high level. In fact, everything actually happens up above shop level. You need to look upwards. Some of them have got dates on them. Those ones haven't, but they're around about turn of the century. Um, and then you get all sorts of influences coming in. You get, you know, the, we're standing opposite a building which has got red brick and white striped banding on it. Very, very dramatic. And that's arts and crafts. That's, you see that in London and major cities. So it's, it's very, very typical of that period. You've got a corner turret which again is, is, is typical of, it's actually typical in South End. You see it throughout South End along the seafront and throughout the residential areas. And I think, it, I, I think it's to do with looking out. It's this thing about being by the seaside and being able to look in different directions. So they're very, you know, they spot, they, they crop up here and there every, everywhere. Um, and and the, the, one of the most striking features where, where we're standing now is what the Edwardians did down one side of the street, which okay. is this amazing take on a Roman arcade. And it, it stretches for, I don't know, about two or three hundred metres, just goes on and on. And it's just an elongated um, Roman arcade. Is that the row of shops up there? The, this, is, this is the arches oh, that you can see here. And you can see that they've got terracotta details around it, the brickwork around is terracotta and then you've got little ornamental details along the top mm. and a series of swags and on top of that there's other little dormer windows with you know fretwork to the what are called the barge boards on the front. Andy took me on a guided tour of the Hamlet Court Road. His descriptions of the architectural features sounded like poetry to my ears I think Robert Buchanan would have actually appreciated it too. As we move further down the road, closer to where the Hamlet Court, where Buchanan had lived, had been, 
we stopped and admired the 1930s building that once housed the Havens department store, which had only closed its doors a few years previously. And then you've got, um, right in the middle of the road, the most important building that we have, which is Havens, and it's at the, the flagship store in the road. Built in uh, 1935-ish, I think, round about then, in the Art Deco style, covered with what's called, what's called faience, material called faience, which is a glazed terracotta material. Okay. And, you know, it's just a, a wonderful piece of architecture, recently been listed, so it's protected. Um, it was the department store in the road for, for many, many years, up until recently. Of course, times have moved on. Lorry going by, sorry. <laughs> so, um, times have moved on and retail has changed, and so it's now got a new use, which is as a community hub, which is a brilliant use for a, a big building. And it didn't shut until fairly recently. It was, it was, it was, it was in the last couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, it's, yeah, I mean, the building is there. It's intact, everything, the shop frontage, the original stall risers at the bottom and the glazing and the doors, door handles, uh, the canopy. There was thought, a thought at the time that the building might actually be more rare than we first thought because canopies were, were a very rare thing at the time. But we think that's not original. That was added some, some little time later. But it's just got beautiful detailing on it lovely dub double height glazing because this the, these sort of bushels of yeah foliage coming down yeah, the coming down columns are lovely aren't they yeah they're very 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 decorative and very kind of baroque um you know the, these little references that get borrowed from different periods of architecture um yeah. wonderful wonderful and and actually very similar to the big stores that were being built in london so you've got um, heels in particular, that's worth looking at. If you look at you know, photographs of heels today, and even the, you know, today the old photographs, this building is very, very similar to it. So again, it's borrowing these references from the metropolis. And where was Hills in London? Hills, Tottenham Court Road. Right. Um, but then there's others, Derry and Toms and uh, Selfridges and all the big, the big. So it was, it marked a change in building construction. There were big steels that were being used. We're not sure whether it's a full steel frame or whether it's kind of a composite steel frame, but it, it, it was a new technology. So instead of the room spaces being small, domestic, you know, domestic scale rooms, suddenly it opened up this big floor plate and we had a new form of retailing. So very, very exciting and, and new. So this part of the road at the top end is, is amazing. We proceeded down the road stopping at the crossroads to gaze upon a parade of shops. We had found the site of the Hamlet Court. Now we've come to a point in the road where, as, as we walk down towards the bottom, the architecture changes and we're now looking at some buildings that obviously look much, much more recent and they're from the um, 1930s, we think the mid to late 1930s. Uh, and the reason why they're much later is that they weren't there, of course, because this was the site of Ham what was Hamlet Court, formerly Hamlet House, which is the area that you're interested in. 
Uh, so this would have been open gardens and we've got photographic evidence of that, we, Edwardian pictures that show this as gardens. And he revealed that just behind the Hamlet Court Road, in another street, you could actually see, by walking down a driveway, the original location and footprint of where Robert Buchanan, Harriet and Mary would have spent their days. That paradise in which the poet could dream. We're now walking up Ditton Court Road and on our right hand side you can see much later buildings, much more recent, and they're mock Tudor. So these would have been built from the 1930s onwards when the piece of land was no doubt sold off. And we've just arrived at what is the most amazing property in Ditton Court Road which is a really large building. That's the first thing that strikes you about it. Very, very big. And it's got this dark, dark brown and red brick um, with obviously uh, an array of windows which are all multi-pane windows. And although the windows are actually a regular size, they actually look like they might be smaller than they actually are because the brickwork is so big. There's so much brickwork. This, that style of big brick edifice with punched openings in it as, as, the, as the windows um, is, is very typical of that period. So we're very lucky to have one of those properties. And it is just one. I don't think there's another one in the town, but one of them in, uh, in Westcliff-on-Sea. And it's actually right beside, and you might have just heard that car going past, it's right beside a driveway which leads to the site of the former Hamlet Court. Um, so it's a private driveway and I'm not sure whether we can easily walk up it, but... Should we try? We, 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 can, we, can, we can have a try. <laughs> uh, but I'm no we, trespasser. We probably shouldn't go too far. Uh, we might need to switch the mic off, <laughs> don't know, um, but the house is no longer there. We think it was demolished around about the turn of the century again, but 19, early 1900s. Uh, so, yeah, but there's an opening and, a, and a, a large piece of ground and just over the way, you can't see it from here, there is a house, but it doesn't look, it's not a house that's worth looking at because it's, it's a nice enough house, but it's not the historic house that was there originally. We followed that car to a set of electric gates, the current home obscured. We felt we couldn't go any further, but I got a sense of the former building's orientation within the landscape. I couldn't picture the elm trees that made up Lover's Lane and the acres of meadow which Harriet lamented the loss of, even back in 1903. Returning to Ditton Court Road, Andy spoke about the road's potential inspiration for future suburbs and town planning across the country in the early 20th century. He believed the prominent and influential town planner, Sir Raymond Unwin, had been in Southend around 1904, when the road's hedged and tree-lined pavements had been some of the first suburban planning in the country. I don't have space to include it here. We need to get back to Robert and Harriet but I have produced a bonus episode of the Hamlet Court Road tour, which highlights some phenomenal history and stories. 
I genuinely felt privileged to have had such a tour with Andy. The Hamlet Court Conservation Forum is currently working hard to get this unique and important built heritage some protected status. If you want to know more, please visit their website, hamletcourt.org, or join the Hamlet Court Road Regeneration Group on Facebook. I left Andy on the corner where Hamlet Court Road meets Canoodon Road. It was a bright but fresh spring morning. I headed to my car with Robert Buchanan's words about the Hamlet Court running around my head. There is no lovelier spot when spring becomes a certainty. Through my research for this episode, I tried to get a flavour for what type of man Robert was. He was clearly fiercely intellectual and knew it. I got the sense of arrogance and surety, yet I can't help but feel the pain he must have gone through after the fleshy school controversy, an episode he publicly regretted and withdrew later on. Some biographers have also made him out to be a bungler, limping from one mess to another. The person who comes out of the shadows, however, is his sister-in-law, Harriet Jay, a Victorian polymath if ever I saw one. She wrote nine novels, 13 plays, some under the pseudonym Charles Marlowe, three musicals, and she directed or wrote five films from 1915's Alone in London to 1936's When Nights Were Bold. She was a busy actor on the West End stage during the 1880s, and she managed the Novelty Theatre in London. There is no academic or popular study of Harriet Jay, who was born in Grays, Essex. Robert himself does not fare much better, and beyond a PhD thesis and the loving portrait of his greatest supporter, Harriet, they both reside in relative obscurity. But the story doesn't end there. I knew Robert, Harriet and Mary were all buried in South End, and it didn't take long to discover they rested in St John the Baptist churchyard. I knew the churchyard so well because it lay in the shadow of the multi-storey car park and behind the gigantic Palace Hotel on the seafront, up the cliff from the pier and the lifeboat station. I headed out there with my recorder in hand. I was also aware that Robert Buchanan was commemorated by an impressive plinth and a bust sculpted by local artist Lisa Hawker. As I continued into the graveyard, I spotted the plinth, dark and solitary, standing in the far corner in its own marble alcove. I also noted that three teenagers had positioned themselves right next to the plinth to smoke. This would make for an awkward recording, I thought. So I'm here in the... Um churchyard of St John the Baptist Church Gardens. There's a nice plaque here that says the Church of St John the Baptist was consecrated in 1842. Its gardens are the last resting place for leading poet Robert Buchanan and for many of the town's earliest benefactors and dignitaries. There is also a lasting memorial to the author George Warwick Deeping 
Southend-on-Sea's first mayor, Thomas Dowsett, is buried here, as are several former distinguished aldermen, together with relatives of Admiral Lord Nelson. In keeping with the town's links to the sea, it is also the last resting place of Mr J Moore, first coxswain of the local lifeboat crew. Right, let's go in. So I'm here standing in front of the sculpture of Robert Buchanan, poet, novelist and dramatist. Died in London, June 10th, 1901. It's very, very sort of a spade-like beard on a black granite plinth. And on either side of the arch, there's um, dedications to Mary Buchanan, his wife, who died at Southend-on-Sea on November the 7th, 1881, aged 36 years, also of Harriet J, sister of the above, who died December 21st, 1932, novelist and dramatist. And then on the other side of the arch is Margaret Buchanan, his mother, who died in London on November the 24th, 1894, aged 78 years. As you can hear, I didn't do a great job in the description, did I? What I wanted to say was that Robert looked pretty severe with his big beard and solemn plinth. The kids were looking at me intently and as I walked away asked whether I was from around here. They seemed dubious that anyone would want to come and read old gravestones. This was their hangout but they seemed happy to share on this occasion. Later that week I managed to catch up with the sculptor of the bust, Lisa Hawker, at her home in Rayleigh. I first asked her what was involved in making such a monument. I took it on as a challenge, really, because I'd never really, I'd never done a three-dimensional head before I did Robert Buchanan. <laughs> so um, that was that was a, 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 a sort of a, a steep learning curve. But um, I've, I've done architectural ceramics for years and I've done bas relief where you're doing figurative stuff and it, as it comes out of the wall. I did a, a baby for South End Hospital, special care baby unit. So I've done various other projects. So I knew I could do it, but it, it's like anything else. Obviously the subject has, has sort of long passed. So you, you can't refer to an actual person. But um, there's different um, calculations that you use, or, or they're, they're quite similar calculations that you use when you're sculpting a, a person. You know, like the third, the, from the top of the head to the eyes is a third, and the eyes to the mouth, and the mouth to the chin is, your face is roughly the same proportion um, as another face, if you see what I mean. It's just the intricacies that are so different. And, it sounds a bit hippie, but uh, you really need to get into the character of the, the person. It's a bit like method acting, I suppose, in a way. <laughs> so I, I contacted, I tried to find out all I could about Robert Buchanan. And um, I contacted the Robert Buchanan Appreciation Society. I didn't, I don't know if you knew that there was one. I didn't, no. I didn't. <laughs> and... Um, and the guy Patrick there was really helpful and gave me lots more photographs that wouldn't have normally been accessible 
So I, I sort of researched it by looking at loads of photographs, looking at the basic um, proportions, getting my family involved. I took pictures of my son, my son, both sons, my husband, and just try to get a feel for, for what the character of the piece was going to be like, because obviously you're restricted. At the, even though I had those photos from Patrick at the, um, the Buchanan Appreciation Society, they were still quite regimented photos. There's none that are casual at that time, because it was, I think, 19th century, you weren't sort of, it was all posed shots. So you, you had to sort of, um, you just had to feel the person, if that makes sense, as you were doing him. So some, sometimes, some days he would look less like I wanted him to, and other days he would look a bit more like it. But eventually we got there. I think it was a period of about three months that he took to sculpt, so it was quite a long time. Because he, he looks quite severe in the photos that I've seen, but then I think they all, they all did, didn't they, in those days? Yes, exactly, yes. But he must have been a kind person mm. so you need to get that warmth across as well you started with an armature and then that's built up um it's just basically a piece of wood on another um flat piece of wood and you screw it from the bottom and then you have to make a metal armature which you pad out with i pad it out with newspaper and tape and then you start working you you just actually put the clay all over it and then you just start from there so it's quite heavy, and then that, this is the way I work anyway, and then that entire um, sculpt, as it's called, is transferred to the foundry. I used the foundry in London, who took the, um, like a, a plaster cast or a ceramic cast of the, the head. It's a very complicated, it seemed to me a very complicated process. They walked me through it, and I've since done other busts there, and they've, each time I, I'm flabbergasted by the processes involved. And then you, you eventually get a wax model from it. So they, they do the ceramic cast and then they make a wax cast from it. But so you've got like the wax as you have sculpted the clay right. model, you get the wax model and then you can alter that. So I did some alterations to the wax model um, at the foundry. And then that is, is cast again into another shell. I think that's the ceramic shell section. And then that is, it's called a lost wax process. And then that is put into this metal vat and the wax goes and you're left with the cast of the bronze. So it's, it's, not, it's not dense, the bronze, it's like a, um, so many millimeters thick. And it's hollow inside. It is actually hollow inside, but it's very, very heavy anyway. It's, um, it is, that is a complex process, isn't it? Oh, it is. <laughs> it's yeah. like layer upon layer upon layer of process. Yes, yeah, it, it's very, um, yeah, it's very interesting to go there and, you know, learn about it as well. And then obviously, when, once that's done, then they apply patina, which, um, which changes the appearance because the, the bronze, when it first comes out, is quite bright. So you have to tone it down. Because in the graveyard at the moment, he's quite dark, you know, he's, he's you know. Yes, it darkens over time. 
And then you, you should really, um, he had some wax applied on him for going outside. <laughs> and then um, every year it should be actually waxed over to maintain the original appearance. But, but sometimes the aging of it is quite attractive anyway. Yeah, and I really liked um, when I went into the churchyard, he, he looked really nice where he is because there's that built, they built that sort of arch, that alcove. And, and he yes. sort of stands there and he looks really grand by the wall there, I think. Well, there was a bus there originally. It wasn't built for him. Um, I think it was a stone bust. I couldn't get any pictures of it, which was strange as well. Oh. Um, and it was it was vandalised, I think, some time ago. So, yeah, this was this was a completely new bus, but the same the same uh, base, if you like. I was intrigued to know if Lisa had any thoughts about Robert Buchanan when she was making the bust. Because Robert Buchanan was such a big part of Southend. He loved Southend, even though he was Scottish. Um, but he was, he was actually born in Stafford, but he lived most of his life in Scotland. But he loved the area. And, and I kind of liked his personality because he wasn't like a lot of people at the time. He, he was really into women's rights and animal rights as well, animal welfare, which I could identify with. And so I thought he seemed quite a nice, nice guy. As we talked, Lisa regaled me with the story of Robert's missing glasses. Well, the glasses were always a big part. Every photograph he had glasses on. So at the foundry, they're used to making the glasses because you couldn't make glasses out of clay. So they make the glasses and I'm there sort of just saying how they should be and everything. So they pop the glasses on at the last minute. And I thought they're very fragile because though they're welded on or soldered on or whatever the process is, um, they were still quite fragile. So I think they lasted a year before they popped off. And (laughs) I can't say that I think they fell off either. I think they were prized off maybe. Robert Buchanan never became the next Alfred Lord Tennyson. From my perspective, he was a marginal figure in Victorian literature, but scholars may well disagree, I'm sure. I did find elements of Robert's character very progressive. Lisa mentioned his advocacy of women's rights and animal welfare, and I also read that he defended Oscar Wilde during his prosecution as a homosexual. I think the fleshy controversy really damaged his standing and he turned to popular entertainment of the West End to continue his career. The tragedy of his wife's death and how it affected him reveals a very human aspect to his life. Looking at Robert's life in Southend has also highlighted the unsung career of Harriet Jay. And maybe one day she'll be recognised for her contribution to the literary arts and cinema, and the theatre. Maybe she deserves a bust in Southend too. Looking into Robert Buchanan has also brought out a treasure trove of information and history about Hamlet Court Road, which I explore further in the bonus episode. I'm so grateful to Andy Atkinson of the Hamlet Court Conservation Forum, and Lisa Hawker, who expertly sculpted the bust of Robert. Joe Overfield, local poet, definitely read the extracts from Harriet Jay's biography. And I'm honoured to have had Thomas Coombs, a Southend actor and friend, to read out 
Buchanan's and Rossetti's writings. He's regularly on your film screens, theatre stages and TV sets, so please check him out. Thanks to him and Joe both. I'm going to play this episode out with a song inspired by the local author John Fowles' first novel, The Collector. The song is called Think You Free Mary and appears on my first album, The Water or The Wave. Next time, I stumble across how Southend may well have contributed to one of Harry Houdini's most famous illusions. See you next time in Clifftown. Cobwebs and the kite twine